Hey murder lovers, this is Fatina, and you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Hey everyone, thank you so much for allowing us to take a break. I hope your year started out with as little hiccups as possible. Life kept throwing us a couple curveballs, but we're rolling with the punches here. We wanted to get back as soon as possible to bring you content. So without further ado, today I am going to be talking to you about the case of Sherry Rasmussen. Sherry was born on February 7th, 1957. And as everyone would tell you, she was a very smart student and she graduated high school at the age of 16. Now, that's when most of us are entering high school but she had the brains to do so. And at the age of 16, she started doing her undergrad at UCLA from 1978 to 1982. From there, she went to graduate from Loma Linda University from critical care nursing. Now, everyone that knew her said that she had a passion for nursing because she wanted that a time with patients as opposed to someone like an emergency doctor. Although she had the brains to go on and do something like that, she wanted to stay in that particular part of the field because she liked that she could give attention to any patient. By her late 20s, she was already a director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. This is in California. She was not only doing nursing, but she was also giving presentations and teaching fellow nurses for their continued education. During this time, Sherry went to a party. While she was at this party, she met a nice, handsome man named John. John was also a recent graduate. He was a mechanical engineering major. He was born in San Diego, and John immediately fell head over heels for Sherry. He loved how smart she was, how beautiful she was, but above all, that she really had a passion for what she was doing in life. Almost immediately, Sherry and John became engaged. John gave Sherry a BMW as an engagement present. It's a really nice present. And from there, they went on to get married in November of 1985. After getting married, they moved in together to a condo in a gated community. At about three month mark of being married, John came home with three red roses to gift to Sherry. This was to symbolize each of the three months that they had been blissfully married. On the Monday morning of February 24th, 1986, Sherry had to go to work that day. So did John. John was doing his normal routine. He was up and out of the house by 7.20 that morning. On his way to work, he dropped off some clothes at the dry cleaner and then he was at his desk by 8 a.m. this morning. John said that Sherry had a motivational speech to give at work that day. Unfortunately, Sherry was not very fond of this because she thought that this was an ineffective and pointless way of motivating the nurses at work. So in order to get out of it, because she had been to an aerobics class the day before and had tweaked her back, she was going to call in sick, saying that she had hurt her back too much to come into work. 
so John knew that she was going to be staying home that day. At 10 a.m. that morning is when John first made a call to Sherry. I think it was just to check in on her, make sure she was doing okay. But of course, that call went unanswered. The voicemail machine was not on. Now, this is the 80s, so you've got to remember, you've got to activate your voice machine before you leave the house. And it had not done that. This was only the first of three or four calls that John made throughout the day while he was at work trying to reach Sherry. He didn't think too much of it. He thought that maybe she had just laid down for a nap or was doing stuff around the house. At 9.45 that same morning, one of the neighbors noticed that the garage door was open. Throughout the day, Sherry's sister also put in a call to her, but there was no answer. At around noon, there were two gardeners that were there at the condominium, and they turned over a purse that they had found on the street to one of the neighbors that they saw outside. There was a maid that was cleaning an adjoining condo next to Sherry and John's, and she said that around 12.30, she heard what was two people arguing and something big drop. When John got home later that afternoon, he found that there was some glass in the driveway. Now, a couple weeks earlier, Sherry had backed out of her driveway and had hit the mirror on her BMW. So he thought, man, maybe Sherry hit it again and she panicked and she didn't close the garage door on her way out. He walked up to the front door and he noticed that it was a little bit opened. He continued walking in and the first thing he saw was that the voicemail machine was not turned on. Now, things are starting to get a little odd. The car's not home, the door's open, there's glass in the driveway, and the voicemail machine's not on. And he said that both him and Sherry would habitually turn it on if they knew there was going to be no one home. He continued into the house, yelling out for Sherry. Unfortunately, what he walked into was a gruesome scene. He found Sherry laying in a pool of her own blood that was about three feet wide. She had been shot three times, twice in the chest and once in the abdomen with a 38 caliber gun. It looked like someone grabbed one of the nearby quilts and used it as a makeshift muzzle to shoot through to dampen the noise. It also was evident that she had been assaulted there was bruises on her face. The first thing he did was grab a blanket, put it over her, and continue to call 911. So the cops show up and they start securing the scene. They realize right away that it looks like it was a burglary gone wrong. Based on the damage around the house, it seemed like either burglars walked in and were startled by Sherry's presence or she came down to surprise burglars from the second floor and they were in the first floor. There was a vase that was broken. There was a stereo set that was piled on top of each other, laying next to Sherry. They had been completely pulled out from where they belong. So it looked like these were items that someone was preparing to take, but in the heat of the moment, forgot to take them. According to the detectives, it looked just like a burglary gone wrong. Of course, they interviewed everyone, and of course, they interviewed John. They always interview the husband. 
they were able to rule him out right away. By the time that 911 call was made, rigor mortis had already set in, and based on the timeline, John was at work the entire time while this could have happened. The detectives did a canvassing of the neighborhood, and as time went on, one or two weeks later, there was a reported break-in of two Hispanic men in a nearby home. Because of the description given of these two men in the separate burglary, the detectives figured that this was also the set of perpetrators that might have murdered Sherry. So they followed that lead, and they followed that lead hard. Unfortunately, because they were following this lead, and because it looked like this might have been done by two people, while they were interviewing everyone, one of the people that they interviewed was John's father. John and Sherry had a really nice relationship of father-in-law and daughter-in-law. Sherry confided in her father-in-law weeks prior to her being murdered that there was something going on with John and a possible ex-girlfriend. There were some things that just didn't sit right with her, so she confided in him. The father-in-law told this to the police that there was an ex-girlfriend of John's that they should look into. He kept referring to her as the lady cop, the lady cop ex-girlfriend. He didn't quite know her name, but what he told them went unheard. He let them know that weeks prior to her being murdered, this ex-girlfriend had shown up to her work telling her that if she couldn't have John, no one can, that she needed to back off. And prior to her getting married to John, this ex-girlfriend showed up to the house unannounced, asking John to wax her skis. It's a random favor to ask for from somebody, but she asked for him to wax her skis, and he did that, even though Sherry asked him not to, and she wanted to know what was up between him and her, and he said, oh, nothing, it's just an old friend from college. Because this ex-girlfriend lady cop that the father-in-law was referring to was in the same precinct as the detectives that were investigating her murder, although they did talk to her, they ruled everything out and nothing was followed up on. The case went cold for years. From 1986 that the murder happened, there wasn't going to be any leads again till 2005. In 2005, there was a criminalist who had some downtime and wanted to reopen or relook at some of the cold cases for the county. One of those cases was Sherry Rasmussen's. She wanted to look at this one DNA sample that was taken from the crime scene. Sherry had been bitten on the arm and there was a swab taken for evidence. Although it was taken in on the evidence log, she could not find it in the evidence locker. It wasn't until she was determined enough that she stepped foot into the coroner's freezer and dug through years, hundreds upon hundreds of unorganized evidence and finally found the one single swab that contained the DNA evidence. She had that single piece of evidence run through CODIS, which is a system that tries to match up the DNA sample 
with known DNA samples. Unfortunately, there was not a hit. But based on the evidence and the test results, she could tell that it was a woman's profile. With this information, she went back to the detectives and asked them to reopen this case and make it active again. She let them know that based on the profile from the DNA sample, that it was a female sample, their theory that it was two men that had burglarized a home and murdered Sherry could not possibly be true. Unfortunately, the detectives ignored her, and the case went cold for another four years. But before doing that, this criminalist was sure to note everything in the file so that if it ever were to be reopened again, they would at least have that to work off of. In 2009, the case was re-examined once again, this time from a tip that once again named the lady cop ex-girlfriend of John. The ex-girlfriend's name is Stephanie Lazarus. She also went to school at the same time with John, and they played on intramural basketball teams, and she was a political science major. Right after graduating college in 1982, she became a cop. So the first couple of years, of course, she was a beat cop. Now, as the time went on, now in 2009, Stephanie Lazarus was actually a detective with LAPD in the art theft division. So with this tip that the detectives got, along with knowing that the DNA sample from the bite mark on Sherry was female, they of course at least wanted to talk to her. And they also wanted to talk to John. They went back to John and asked him if he thought that Stephanie Lazarus could potentially be someone involved in his late wife's murder. He didn't think so. And he told them that although they were necking and fooling around his words, they were never officially boyfriend and girlfriend. They would occasionally date throughout their years in college, but he said that it was strictly just sex and that after graduating, they probably just had sex 20 to 30 times between the years of 1981 and 1984, but again, that she was never his girlfriend. When John turned 25, Stephanie had put together a surprise party for John, unbeknownst to her that he had moved on from what she thought was a relationship. She was completely ignorant of the fact that he had been dating other women or that he had even begun a serious relationship with Sherry. After that party, John actually broke the news to her and let her know that he was in a serious relationship with Sherry and that he thought he might actually be marrying her. After that encounter, Stephanie wrote a letter to John's mom in August of 1985, where she wrote, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really tore me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. And later detectives found in Stephanie's journal an entry that said, I really don't feel like working. I found out that John is getting married. So one month before John and Sherry got married, in October of 1985, Stephanie asked John to come over to her house and that she just wanted to talk. 
And John apparently agreed to have sex with her as a way to give her closure. So things just get weird with this ex-girlfriend. Things get a little fatal attraction-y. And then we got clarification on the story of the skis getting waxed. Stephanie had gone over to John and Sherry's house unannounced, asking John to wax her skis. And a couple days later, she showed up to pick up the skis in her full officer's uniform, including her weapon, to pick up the skis, knowing full well that John was not going to be home. This is now seen as a way of intimidating Sherry. Sherry also told her father-in-law that after the encounter at the hospital where Stephanie had come over and said, if I can't have him, no one can, that she felt like she was getting stalked by someone, that someone was following her around, and that a couple of times around town, she felt and saw the presence of someone that was dressed up in men's clothing, even though she did say it looked like a woman in men's clothing, that had very piercing and noticeable eyes. Now, I invite you all, when we are done here, to Google or to just give a search on Stephanie Lazarus. Her eyes are very prominent. It is one of her biggest features, one of the features that uh, her eyes are not bulging, but they're wide open all the time. And um, they are very dark eyes. So you can see how this is probably the, the one feature that stood out to Sherry. If someone is, if you're feeling like you're getting followed by someone and you look at them, the eyes is probably going to be the first thing. But of course, this stood out on Stephanie. Sherry obviously didn't like Stephanie's unannounced visits, and she again asked John to ask her to stop coming around, not only unannounced, but to stop coming around, period. John reassured Sherry again that this was just a friend, and he was just doing her a favor, but there was nothing to be worried about. Now, about the encounter one month before the wedding, that they actually had consensual sex or this closure sex. John said that he did tell Sherry about this and they worked through it as a couple, but that she was aware of this because he didn't want her to find out any other way, not only that they did have sex while they were engaged, but also that they had a sexual past together. So instead of her finding any other way, he went ahead and told her herself. I can't say that she probably just said, okay, let's move on. I'm sure they had a longer conversation than that. But nonetheless, according to John, Sherry was aware of his and Stephanie's past. So now in 2009, when the detectives are onto Stephanie Lazarus, because they are literally sharing a building with her in the precinct, they ask her to come in one day into one of the interrogation rooms. They just tell her that she might have knowledge about an old case that they are working on, so they invite her in. Thank goodness they press record, which we should all know they're always recording in these rooms. Nonetheless, this video, this interrogation goes on for about an hour and a half. And this is one of the things that if you really want to deep dive into this, 
I'll link it in our bios. There's long interrogation about this, but it is very telling, especially knowing now what we know. There was an hour and a half of Stephanie being asked very simple things. Do you remember John? What was your history with him? Were you dating? And she didn't say anything like we were boyfriend and girlfriend or, you know, we dated seriously, but she did half-assedly remember that they had a relationship of sorts, but they were never exclusive. She eventually did remember or recall that they had even been on some trips together, that she had somewhat of a relationship with his family, hence the letters that she had wrote to his mother after they had after she had found out that he was getting married. And this goes on for, like I said, an hour and a half, but the body language in this video, in this interrogation is so, so interesting. And because she is trying to recall, of course, as little as possible to put her at the scene, to put her anywhere in the vicinity of that crime. She says that she doesn't remember meeting Sherry. And at one point, she tries to make up other names like, oh, was it with was it Shelly, Sherry? It was Sherry. And eventually, even though she is a detective herself, an active detective, albeit in the art theft division, she still knows the process. And the detectives that are talking to her without telling her, the traditionally said way of the Miranda rights, like you do have a right to a lawyer, you know, you have the right to not talk to us, to be silent. And they even told her if she wanted to walk away and walk out of the room, she absolutely had the right to do so. She didn't do that. She did ask at one point if she needed to get a lawyer. And of course, the detective said, you know, that's your choice. You can if you want, but we're just talking to you. We're trying to figure this out. She kept asking them, why am I here? Why are you asking me about, you know, someone that I was with 20 plus years ago? I don't remember all the details. And eventually she left. She left and she went home. Now the detectives knew that they had this female DNA sample. One of the detectives fortunately followed her to a Costco restaurant area. At this Costco, she had sat down with her daughter to have lunch, and she discarded her cup. The detective did not move his eyes off the trash can and waited for her to be out of sight before he went and retrieved that cup. Now, they went and matched the cup, the DNA on the voluntarily discarded cup, to the DNA found on the crime scene 25 years earlier on the body of Sherry Rasmussen. Now we know that the morning of February 24th, when Sherry had been murdered, Stephanie was off of work that day. She did not have an alibi of any kind. And three weeks later, after the shooting, she made a report that her vehicle was parked at the Santa Monica Pier and that along with a gym bag full of clothes, her gun had been stolen. So she replaced it with a new gun at that point. 
Sherry did have a defense team that tried to say that, of course, the credibility of the DNA sample that was taken 20-some years ago was not as potent as it would be now that she had admittedly been in the house before for the situation with the skis and maybe visiting John once or twice after that. So they're saying that her DNA could have possibly been in that house. Luckily, the judge and the jury saw past that and they convicted her of murder and she was sentenced to 27 years to life, which she is serving at a California women's prison. Now, a long time passed, of course, from murder to when they finally were able to close this case. Sherry's family, as DNA was progressing through the years, when they found out that DNA was a credible source to try and solve a case, especially if a sample was taken, they offered their own money to try and get the sample run. This was years before 2005, and the LAPD declined their offer. There's a lot of theories out there on whether or not this was just bad police work or if it was an internal cover-up, if they were defending one of their own. Personally, I don't think they were defending one of their own. I think they looked past one of their own. But if they had the ability to run the DNA a little bit sooner, and they had the, if they had taken into the account the criminalist report in 2005, it could have even done four years before 2009, but just simply wasn't. I think that unfortunately can just be put up to bad police work. Sherry's family did try suing LAPD for taking so long in solving this murder, even though the evidence was with them the entire time. And they had mentioned the ex-girlfriend and that lead was ignored. Unfortunately, the statute ran 10 years from the murder. So although the judge wanted to hear the case, even if he read the letter of the law in the gray area, it just could not be done due to the statute of limitations. After the murder and before her arrest, Stephanie lived a perfectly normal life. She went on to fall in love with a fellow detective who she married, and they ended up adopting a daughter. She even beat thyroid cancer. So for all intents and purposes, she lived a great life. She didn't count on being caught 20-some years later. She probably thought she'd gotten away with it completely. We'll of course be making a post to this. There is some crime scene photos on there that we'll only post on the Murder Lovers Facebook group. And besides that, I want to know your opinions. What do you think about this? Do you think that this is just botched, bad police work? of the detectives not following up on every lead as much as they could or being blinded by this first theory that it was burglars or do you think it was an internal cover-up? Go follow us on our social medias and post your comments on the episode's post so we know what your thoughts are or shoot us an email at astrangerdangerpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com Go follow us on patreon.com where your suggestions for episodes are shot up to the top of the list for cases to be covered. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.